You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 18th of July 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. It should have been obvious. I thought it would be obvious, but I would like to clarify just in case it wasn't. In a key sentence in my remarks, I said the word would instead of wouldn't. The sentence should have been, I don't see any reason why it wouldn't be Russia. Sort of a double negative. Donald Trump and the 21st century version of it depends what the meaning of the word is is. But has the president succeeded in walking back to happiness? My guests Kathleen Burke and Jonathan Fenby will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the resignation speech of UK Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson, the European Union's challenge of Google's search supremacy, and one man went to mow, went to mow all 50 of the United States. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. So, welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Kathleen Burke, Professor of Modern and Contemporary History at University College London, and Jonathan Fenby, Chairman of China Research and Director of European Political Research at TS Lombard. Welcome both. And we will start in the United States, which is still trying to figure out, as we all are, whether to believe President Donald Trump's statements at the Helsinki summit with Vladimir Putin or the entirely contradictory ones he issued the following day. Even more excitingly, Trump has since unburdened himself of some equivocal musings about the value of NATO. In an interview with one of his few intellectual equals in the US media, Fox News' Tucker Carlson, Trump suggested that he didn't really understand why the United States should be obliged to help its partners. Your reminder that the only time NATO has invoked Article 5 of its treaty, the all-for-one, one-for-all clause, was in America's defence. Jonathan, we should also say before we crack on with this that in in the last few minutes, uh, Trump has been asked again if Russia is still targeting the United States. Uh, he shook his head, according to this report, and said, no, uh, this is a direct and literal contradiction of exactly what the Director of National Intelligence exactly. uh, just said. Um, so how does his whole, I meant to say the complete opposite of what I actually <laughs> said, tack, uh, strike you as working out? Well, uh, he's used this phrase, the Trump derangement syndrome, uh, against his critics and opponents. But I think this could very well be applied to him at the moment, uh, and particularly over uh, this uh, case and this instance there, where, uh, frankly, he just seems to say whatever he comes into his head, uh, and then that is embarrassing. Republicans and others, uh, tut tut, and members of his staff, uh, we're told, said you better get uh, this right. So he just uh, flips to 180 degrees of, I meant to say, the opposite. Uh, Where this leaves you is just with complete bemusement. Uh, Kathleen, if you if you were invited to bet on uh, red or black here, um, which one of those do you think he actually thinks that Russia did interfere with the twenty sixteen presidential election, or Russia didn't? Well, but Putin has told him that strongly. <laughs> that <laughs> Russia, <laughs> Russia didn't. I and, mean, and, who, and, and who this, my friend this? Vladimir, <laughs> and, and this is good enough for you, is it? <laughs> um, I believe the U.S. intelligence agencies. Of course they did. Of course they did. And it is it is dispiriting that the once and future, I hope, leader of the free world um, is so is so 
all anyone has to do is say how clever you are and we really like you and you're doing a great job. And mm. the man will sacrifice almost anything uh, to say they think I'm really good. Of course they're really good. I can only say black. Okay. Well, Jonathan, his his latest remarks um, in this interview mm. with, with Tucker Carlson and, yeah. and, and being the silliest man on Fox News is quite an accomplishment, <laughs> but I think it is Tucker Carlson by a very short head from Sean Hannity. Um, are Trump's remarks... Trump's remarks about NATO are self-evidently fatuous. It's genuinely not clear to me that he understands what NATO is or how it works. Are they actually dangerous? They are dangerous if... Well, A, if he actually does believe them and what you say if that's correct means he doesn't really believe anything he will say almost anything uh, and they are dangerous if they influence policy making uh, by him in areas where the president has power to do so and quite clearly this whole russian uh, issue is so neuralgic uh, with him that you just have to press it and then uh, play the kind of blandishment that uh, he is so uh, susceptible to uh, to get uh, the reaction that you want out of him. And yes, that is dangerous from somebody uh, who is in the White House and with the powers of the US president. Uh, Kathleen, there were many strange moments uh, in his interview with Tucker Carlson, uh, but the question of Montenegro was raised, and I, I, for one, would actually forgive Tucker Carlson anything if at that point he'd whipped out a globe and invited Donald Trump to point to it. I have actually been to Montenegro. I've been I, can, to Montenegro. I can give you a long uh, description of Montenegro. It's a, it, it, it is a beautiful country and yes. I, rec I recommend visiting heartily uh, to any of our listeners who have not yet made the trip. Uh, but uh, Tucker Carlson put to uh, Trump the, the, the scenario of why he should send any son of his uh, to fight and die in Montenegro's name, therefore uh, demonstrating two things, that Tucker Carlson doesn't understand how NATO works either and also has failed to appreciate there are right at this moment, Montenegrin soldiers serving in Afghanistan uh, mm. on a NATO mission originally launched in defence of the United States. Uh, Trump went on to say that the Montenegrins were very strong people, uh, well, maybe, and they may get aggressive <laughs> with, I believe, their one brigade of light infantry uh, and, and cause World War Three. Does that strike you as likely? Uh, no, but it means he at least we know that he has some sort of faint thought about the First World War when a damn fool thing in the Balkans did indeed cause the yes. World War. This is true. So I think perhaps you ought to go on a slightly different uh, um, axis there. Um, but following that up, Kathleen, it, it's just the question becomes... Is Article 5 really worth anything if the President of the United States does not believe in it? <laughs> Leaders come and go. We can only hope that the next president believes in it because, it, as you quite rightly say, it has limited credibility uh, without American uh, taking part mm -hmm. in it. Um, I don't know. I mean, there are... A lot of other members of NATO, with any luck, they will at least help each other, depending on where it is. You see what I mean? But yes, it does have credibility until it is actually not there anymore. Until the U.S. actually pulls out of it. Um, or doesn't take part in some joint operation. Well, do you think there would be a, a joint operation agreed if the U.S. refused no, no, to take no, part? No, no, sorry, take part. Prevents, let us say, a joint operation that the others want. 
Yes. Um, it, it, it's that point, though, that, that Kathleen makes that leaders come and leaders go. Yes. Uh, and I'll put this to you, Jonathan, that if you are Vladimir Putin and understanding, as I'm sure he does, that leaders go, is he is the danger with Trump's equivocation that he might think, well, there's no, go- there's never going to be a time like the present? It's, it's quite possible, although he may think uh, this is going to go on for another uh, six years with a second Trump uh, term, and I'm building for that. Well, that's something to look forward to. Um, <laughs> let's, mo- let's move along now slightly, uh, but sticking with the subject of extravagantly quaffed celebrities who have promoted themselves <laughs> several miles out of their depth. Former UK Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson made his resignation statement to the House of Commons earlier today. In common with those who campaigned most ardently for Brexit, although the evidence that Johnson ever actually believed in it is disputable, he blamed everybody but himself for the fact that a cheese dream of ideology adult headbangers is proving difficult to to implement in practice. Uh, Kathleen, was this an outstanding moment of parliamentary oratory? Were you at least impressed by the manner of his going? Well, my problem was, of course, that I didn't see the speech. Uh, <laughs> those of us who were, who were doing other things this You managed afternoon, to miss it. <laughs> well, I would have liked to have seen it, but uh, there were uh, alternative calls on my time. Um, it obviously depends on who you listen to. If you listen to Jacob Rees-Mogg, it was one of the great speeches of the 20th century, our second Churchill. Uh, if you listen to most other people in the world, as far as I can tell, it was fatuous and self-serving and didn't say an awful lot that he hadn't already said. Uh, what did you think, Jonathan? Uh, I mean, the th- Boris Johnson, say whatever else you will about him, and that's not merely a rhetorical construct. You may interpret that as an invitation. Uh, he, he, he does have a way with words. He does have a certain rhetorical flair. But, but did he actually say anything of any real interest? Uh, no, no, not not to me. And even the the rhetoric, the words, you know, the fog of self doubt, the dithering, and so on and so on. These are pretty familiar terms, um, which many people uh, among the Remain camp would apply to the government and uh, its way of handling the Brexit negotiations. Um, So I don't think that there was nothing particularly stirring or, you know, rushing to the barricades uh, in this. Uh, It's more, I think, uh, Johnson, ever since David Davis went, Johnson has been, to my mind, positioning himself for if there is a leadership challenge, uh, he will be there at the head of the Leave camp. Uh, and so on, with the backing of Rees Mogg uh, and others. And he's not throwing down the gauntlet as such this afternoon, but he's making sure that he is there uh, on the uh, white uh, charger, ready to leap into the. God, I'm getting, I'm getting lost here in, in, in cliches. In, in, in a fog of uh, <laughs> similes, yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. Ready to launch himself through this fog of self-doubt. On a uh, white charger. On a white charger, and to give us all uh, what Brexit really promised us. The trouble is, I think, that in the period since the referendum, a lot of people have uh, become quite doubtful about what it does offer us. Well, Kathleen, he, he described the, the Chequers plan, which was the one that he originally agreed to and apparently toasted and celebrated with the Prime Minister before abruptly changing his mind 48 hours later once he realised there was nothing in it for him. Uh, he described it as a miserable limbo. Mm. Um, is, is that fair or is the Chequers plan basically all that's available or is in fact a miserable limbo all that is available? Yes to all. I think. I mean, the question is, what else is there? Um, That's that's the lowest common denominator, as far as one can tell, that the cabinet, what's left of it now, uh, 
can agree on. Mm. How many has she lost? Nine? It's quite a lot. It, it, yeah. it, it, it's, it's getting past the coincidence and carelessness well, into a whole other no, thing. No, well, they said they were going to do it one a day. There was going to be one resignation a day until, yeah. until there, she cracked. There has been a number of resignations from people which prompted the widespread reaction of who? Um, so yeah. since since that's since David Davis and Boris Johnson uh, both quit. But just in terms of politics, Jonathan, and this may be wishful thinking on my part, wouldn't the... And, I realise there's an internal problem with the the thing I'm about to suggest, but wouldn't the responsible, grown-up and logical thing for the Brexiteers to do uh, be to accept some sort of transitory halfway house and and, and then say, we'll accept this because we're being grown-ups, we realise that it was a tight vote, etc., etc., but we will take this and we will continue to make our case for further extrication as the years go on? Andrew, that would be the sensible adult thing to That's do. That's the problem, It isn't may it? have been from the beginning. <laughs> the difficulty is that the, the further you've got into this and the further the cost of Brexit and the uncertainty around it and the uncertainty generated by the governments, I, I would agree with uh, Boris on this, with its dithering uh, on this, has pushed the Brexiteers, or they have chosen to be pushed into a more and more uh, extreme position. Die in the ditch trenches, essentially. Exactly. So this now becomes, you know, it can't be long before we have 1940 uh, resurrected, we will fight them on the beaches and and, and so on and so on. This is becoming, for people like Rees-Mogg, I would say, and and that group of Brexiteers, uh, an exercise in national muscle and we are going to show that we can stand up for this great country of ours. All 40 uh, of us. And that, <laughs> it, however, however few you become, that doesn't matter. And in a sense, the more, the, the fewer you become, the more extreme you are likely to be. It, it, it has become sort of a faith, hasn't it? Yeah. Brexit. Yes, it, yes. We, 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 I mean, and that was basically all Boris Johnson's speech had to say. If, if we just believe in Britain, this will somehow sort itself out. That, well, that was when it first started, remember, uh, that... Uh, he was asked in New York, I can't recall, uh, what, uh, uh, how they, what would happen then. He said, we just have to do it. Things will sort themselves yes. out afterwards. Yeah. So there was no plan. Mm-hmm. Um, for all yeah. that, Jonathan, uh, do we think we have seen the last of Boris Johnson in British politics? Or is he going to, is he a member of that? And I'm not saying it doesn't exist anywhere else in the world, but Britain in particular does have this strange stratosphere of people of who, however often and however calamitously <laughs> they screw things up, just always get another chance. There are a lot of them across the channel in France, it must be said, too. <laughs> like I said, I, 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 written about I, France, I, I, I may be more hypersensitive to the British ones because yes. this is where I yeah. live, but no, I think it is he, extraordinary. He, he'll be with us for a very long time to as come. As long as Nigel Farage is. Yes. Who also keeps showing up in the clouds. There's, there's nothing to be... It is, incre- is, it, is it just a complete... Is, is it an extraordinarily self-belief, or and, and this may be the same thing, or just a total lack of shame? It's is, ambition, is, it's a lack of shame, and it's the fact that if you are a reasonably clever operator uh, in your own ambit, at any rate, you're in orbit, as, as, as Boris Johnson is, you will always find people who will rally behind, rally to you uh, for one reason or other, however deluded it may be. Because the terrifying thing is that he is by no means an old man. Um, Kathleen, <laughs> is, there, is there anything to be said at all for his stint as Foreign Secretary? Does he, does he go into the history books as, as one of the great occupants of that great office? He goes in the history book as one who made everyone fall about laughing. 
um, I mean, uh, several uh, European uh, diplomats to whom I have spoken said essentially that uh, he was a buffoon and he was a liar. And he wasn't worth talking to. Well, that, that, that's quite the political epitaph. Would you disagree with any of that, Jonathan? No, well, that certainly is the, the impression that I've got from speaking of people um, across the channel on the other side, uh, not just in the Brexit negotiations, but in general, in the way of behaviour, the way of, you know, trying to represent Britain. And actually, um, his claims for his period as Foreign Secretary were pretty thin this afternoon. I mean, essentially, he was like, like one, one, ah, one way he's like, uh, Trump is he didn't do any homework. Mm, that mm. didn't know, didn't read his briefs, didn't really think about the problems. Think what he did in Iran, that poor sure, female journalist. Exactly. And uh, thinks that his own personality, again, like is Trump, enough. Yeah. is enough. That's it. You know, it's me. It's Charisma forever. The ultimate right. personalization of politics, which doesn't work at that kind of level. Not in foreign policy. No. Indeed not. Well, we will take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Kathleen Burke and Jonathan Fenby. Coming up next, the EU finds Google so much that even Google might notice. What is it like to be a city forgotten and rediscovered? Monocle Films travels to Gunsan in South Korea to bear witness to its urban revival. Here, natives and newcomers are creating quirky bars, art spaces and a bright future for this charming coastal outpost. Gunsan, building on the past, playing now in the film section at monocle.com. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Kathleen Burke and Jonathan Fenby. Google's parent firm Alphabet was reported a few weeks back to have cash reserves of just north of 100 billion US dollars. That being the case, it's unlikely that bailiffs will be required to settle a fine of 5 billion US dollars imposed by the European Commission on the grounds that Google has used its Android operating system to illegally monopolise online searching. But 5 billion dollars is 5 billion dollars and is also perhaps an indication that, in the online world, legislation is beginning to catch up with technology. Uh, Jonathan, is that what's going on here? I mean, traditionally, in all fields, legislation runs behind technological advancement for obvious reasons. Uh, but is is this the, the wild west of the online world uh, being... See, I'm, I'm doing your, your runaway <laughs> metaphor thing now. Uh, you know what? I, there, there's, there's a sheriff involved here somewhere. There is a sheriff yeah. in, in the person of, of the commission, uh, the competition... Uh, commissioner who is making a, a big thing of this, of, of going for uh, the big internet uh, companies and trying to corral them, to use your metaphor. Uh, Kathleen, are they becoming too powerful, the big internet companies? Because it is, it is a kind of power that we haven't seen before, and it's, it's quite difficult to quantify. Well, um, I have I have mixed feelings about this. On the one hand, we insist on uh, business red and tooth and claw in order to you know to get uh, shareholders insist on profits and so forth, and uh, people get elected president because they're great businessmen and so forth. And so, in that sense, I have about a one percent sympathy with Google. But on the other hand, and it, it, you know, the con- I'm a consumer. I'm not a hotshot yeah. businessman, and I would like to be able to trust. You know, what the you know the the, the shopping and and I would like to to think that I if I wanted to get an app and I don't, uh, I could get an app without Android having to, to you know to pay for its soul. No, it's it's if you if you believe in competition, uh, and all Americans are meant to do so, uh, it's a good thing. 
I mean, Google is not going to worry about a little, a little, a little yeah. fly like Margaret Vetchtager. You know, she, <laughs> she's a ferocious woman, and she's incredibly good, and so forth. But uh, um, what may happen is if they don't do it, they then get five percent of their monthly uh, income taken away in a fine. Now that might actually start to to hurt a little yeah. bit. I mean, is there an argument there, Jonathan, that the reason that Google has become the dominant force it, it has, that it just provides an extremely good product, which people like? Yes, I think so. I mean, if, if one imagines, I mean, I use Google all the time. Well, as, as do we as, all. As does everybody. And if you imagine life without Google, it is a very different kind of life. And it uh, does provide a service which is demonstrably extremely useful in lots of different ways. Now, whether it is then goes on to abuse uh, the position which that usefulness gives it is, in a sense, a different matter, I think, from the, the nature of the, the basic service that Google is providing in terms of information. Yeah, on one hand, it's, it's, uh, it's um, the fact that it is user-friendly. Mm. Yeah, but the other hand is, have they prevented others producing user-friendly systems as well? And that's the crux of the matter of this particular case. Or but, have they prevented others providing better yeah, or different exactly. uh, services? But that's always the trouble, Kathleen, with, with monopolies, which is what Google has effectively become, mm. that they get to a point where they yeah. do blot out all competition and they do blot out all uh, you know, in, in, inquiry and, well, in Google's case, almost like they, they blot out the sun. Is there? Are we at the point yet or are we going to get to the point at which there is going to be an argument for forcibly breaking them up? Well, it happened to AT&T and it yes. happened to, to various other huge conglomerates. Uh, it's hard to see what one company gets that server, another company gets that server. I mean, how do you break up something like that? I, I, don't, I don't see how you can break up Google. It's very, very difficult. It would seem to me very difficult to do so because it, it is a very integrated operation service you know as, as Kelsey said what do you take out what do you leave and so on and do you end up actually by providing the public with uh, a less good service but is the answer then just to keep finding them periodically so they don't get too many <laughs> funny ideas that would that would seem like a weird way to the answer is for them not to get funny ideas <laughs> but that may be impossible in the nature of uh, the capitalist beast. Well, just take it as an EU budget item. Every year they get to <laughs> yes. get five billion dollars. We talk about this a lot at various points on Midori House about at what point government should regulate the tech, the tech giants. Uh, it, but it just strikes me that occasionally, for possibly the first time in history, we, we have got to a point at which uh, private corporations are demonstrably more powerful than many nation states. Is, is that going to be sustainable or is it just something we're going to have to learn to live with? Well, if you read science fiction, it's mm. going to be spiders and, and extended uh, uh, fangs crawling all over the place. It is, I mean, the thing is they, they have reached a critical mass. So almost it's all or nothing. So I think all that can happen is people keeping a very close eye on what they're doing and calling them up short when, when it's possible. What you need is more uh, stronger regulatory office mm. or system, which doesn't necessarily going to interfere, but to keep a close eye. Yes. If they know a close eye is being kept on them, they're going to be careful. Mm. Would you agree with that, Jonathan? Yes, I think so. Um, it's, you know, do we assume that the possession of a monopoly or a very near monopoly automatically leads to, quote, bad behaviour, unquote. And are there ways it's of... It's hard to think of, of cases where it happening? hasn't. Exactly. This is the trouble. 
And, and it is it is very hard to think of any company which has monopolized uh, something so important as Google yep. monopolizes. I think searches. that that's that that Andrew that's the important thing. It, it's the 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 reach the extent of google's reach uh which is the real problem here what you have to do is radicalize google employees they stopped <laughs> google helping the united states government with some of their yep. uh, intelligence that you know and, and things that were being developed so that's that's what you go for okay yeah. well finally tonight uh I, I wanted to uh well i wanted to solicit a round of applause not necessarily literal <laughs> that would do weird things to the levels uh for rodney smith jr of huntsville alabama he has for the second year running completed a challenge to mow lawns in every one of the 50 united states mr smith is the founder of raising men lawn care service which encourages participation in community work he responded to suggestions via his website for lawns to mow preferring those of veterans the the elderly, the disabled, and single mothers. Next year, he plans to mow seven lawns on seven continents. Antarctica, you suspect, may <laughs> prove a challenge. Um, I, I really I really like this story. I, I like the idea of uh, what Rodney Smith Jr. of Huntsville has done here. I like the fact that he has not only pursued a whim, but tried to sort of leverage it um, to the greater good. I, I did want to ask, and I'll ask you first, Kathleen, have either of you ever embarked on some sort of self-evidently whimsical travel challenge or trip just for the heck of it? Uh, no. I mean, unless you call by yourself uh, hitching all over a good section of Europe, um, which was possibly less whimsical and more stupid. Um, <laughs> I mean, if I had my druthers now, can I say two things I'd do? Yeah, of course you can. <laughs> okay, first of all, I would like, I'm, I'm keen on wine, as people around this table know. I would like to taste the wines of every 50 states, because every state in the United States makes wine. I would love to taste the wine of, of Alaska, for example. <laughs> but a, a more one to my heart is I'm dead keen on the paintings of um, Flemish primitives, the Northern Renaissance, the 15th and early 16th century paintings. And for years and years, I've wanted to go to every, to go find every single pa uh, uh, picture that any of those artists has painted and just travel around and look at them. But that sounds pretty boring, I guess, next to drinking Alaskan wine. The, the, the 50 Wines Challenge is a, a... You must have mentioned this to a, a literary agent at some point. That's got that's got travel book and radio yeah, series writ all over it, hasn't Ooh, it? you want a commission, do you? Um, no, I'm saying I'd read it if you wrote it. Oh, well, that's a thought. I, I am in the market for ideas for my next book. Well, there's one. I mean, I, am one, I would read it because I'm one of those people who likes wine without really knowing anything mm. about it. Um, yeah. Jonathan, have you ever embarked on any, any, any quest of this sort? Uh, not really. I mean, it's, it's rather boring, I'm afraid to say. I used to drive my wife and family somewhat mad uh, when travelling around France, where we lived uh, for some time by insisting on visiting very obscure provincial towns where a politician who I'd read about in the Third Republic <laughs> once lived. This uh, didn't last for that long. Or one or two uh, villages with um, called after peculiarly named saints. The, the, these are, of these... whom there are a lot in France. And usually these were extremely boring places, I must say. So I've never done that. One thing. How in... old were your poor kids when you were doing this? Oh, they were five, six, seven. Oh, so dear on. Lord. That's not fair. They, you know, be, be quiet in the back of the car. We're, we're going to this place, and I can't actually tell you 
why the saint is of any interest whatsoever, but it's it's a saint's name I've never heard of. So, uh, and usually one would look it up and find that there was no particular uh, reason for distinction there. Uh, another thing I've always thought of doing, but never done, and uh, you will ask me, Andrew, why not? Because I could do it this evening, which is to just travel round and round on the Circle Tube Line in London. Now, I think the difficulty is that the Circle, a lot of Circle trains stop uh, between Paddington and Edgware Road. So you can't <laughs> just go round and round and round forever. Sure, I, I like the fact that you've done your research, though. I mean, <laughs> the, the, I mean, there's lots of things that, that they occasionally occur to me as things that would make good magazine articles, but the trouble is they only occur to me as things that would make <laughs> well, good magazine articles. I, I like the idea of, of, of visiting all the all the American cities mentioned uh, in the great triumvirate of songs that Jimmy Webb wrote, wrote for Glenn Campbell. So you do the, the Galveston Wichita yes. lineman by the time I get to Phoenix <laughs> tour. Uh, I have at various points over the years mentioned that to travel editors, all of whom uh, regarded me like I was insane. Uh, and You'd have to include a CD in it, you and, know. And, and, and possibly quite rightly. But uh, I, I can promise without giving away too much to uh, readers of our Escapist magazine, our annual Trump summer special, that it will contain an account of me embarking on something uh, really, uh, I think, epically pointless is the... um, is a correct phrase, just for the heck of it. So so that is coming up. I, I leave Friday, and if it all works, uh, I will get to the end of my route, I think, the following Wednesday. I have gone back and forth over this timetable so, so often that uh, I'm beginning to weep. But and you can we guarantee going... that it's pointless, Ken. Oh, it's, it's... You won't discover a point along the way. I will be astonished if any point to what I'm doing leaps to mind. And are you going to reveal to us what it is? No, I am not. Everybody no. will have to buy the escape after that. I will reveal to you both off air what that is because but Rodney because Smith has we, a point. We'll be right here. Rodney Smith does have a point. He Take a, a lawn more along. Um would be tricky, but I'll give that some thought. Uh, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Kathleen Burke and Jonathan Fenby, thank you for joining us on Midori House. It was produced by Bill Luty, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, Julia Webster and Paula Schulze. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. Midori House returns at 1800 London tomorrow. I'll be your host for that as well. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. <laughs>